Good morning. My name is Josue Pernillo. I'm the pastoral intern here. Uh, if it's your first time with us, we're really excited to have you. And if you didn't catch my name, my name is Josue, which is like Jose, but cooler. And so I haven't made that joke in a while, but it's usually a, a good joke, and it usually gets laughed, so it's always good to bring it back. If you could please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I remember the verses. It's verses 12 through 18. Um, if you could turn, I'm sorry, look. If you could turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, and we'll read them together. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we could gather. Thank you that we can look into your word. Please help us and strengthen us. Please help those that are struggling this morning and strengthen those that are doing well. We look to you. Help me to preach clearly and humbly as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, there is something that I like to do. It's sort of a secret, but now I'm going to tell you. There is this website called River Runner. Okay? It's River Runner. And if you can't tell, I'm very dorky. And it's going to be very clear in a second. River Runner, you can put in a dress. And what it determines is, if that raindrop falls there, it helps you track it to where it goes. That makes sense? So where does the raindrop that falls on 202 West Illinois Street, where does it go? Where does it flow? And so I looked it up in River Runner. So if a raindrop were to fall right here, like it did last night, it hits the roof and it falls through the gutters, it would go from here to the Boneyard Creek for eight kilometers, then to the Salt Fork, which is a river, not a fork. I didn't know that. From the Salt Fork to the Vermilion River, from the Vermilion River to the Old Channel of the Wabash River, from the Wabash River to the Ohio River, from the Ohio to the Mississippi, and from the Mississippi to the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico. I don't know if you think about those things, but I do that with a lot of addresses, actually. <laughs> um, where does it flow? Where does it go? A tiny raindrop that falls on our roof travels hundreds of miles, mixed with a giant river. And amazingly, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. The flow of the text how it started in chapter 1, verse 27, and it comes to almost a culmination with what we read here today. We're going to be talking about where our Christian life flows, the direction it takes, and the aim of it. We're looking again at the book, or the letter to the Philippians, 
It contains beautiful themes. It's been a year. I know. We finally made it. Almost to the end of chapter two. It has beautiful themes like joy, living in gospel mindset, friendship, humility, unity. And believe it or not, we come to the section, the end of a section in the letter that started in chapter 1, verse 27. In verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul shifted his focus by challenging the Philippians and addressing their issues and the manner in which they considered the problems, both internal and external. Chapter 1, verse 27 begins like this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. In the verses today, we come to the summary of that thought. He talks to them about who they are and how their identity impacts their actions. He summarizes his calling to them and reminds them of God's grace. And hopefully, what we will see today is that because we have been saved by God, we can live as those that are saved. That our identity overflows into our actions. And we're going to talk about it in three points. And Luke changed my three points on Friday afternoon when we were going to their sermon. And I wanted to mention that. He was like, you don't have to change your whole sermon, but I think these are the good three points. So I changed my whole sermon. And here we are. <laughs> here are the three points. The source, the direction, and the end. So first, the source. That's verses 12 through 13. And we'll read them again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul begins wrapping up his ideas for this section by referencing several things. First, he calls them my beloved. One of the beautiful themes of the letter to the Philippians is the relationship that Paul had with his church. Some translations put this as, my friends. He continues exhorting them to obey, both in his presence and in his absence. In verses 21 through 26, Paul is longing for the, to be with them in the flesh, but he is in prison, and he longs for God to ease his imprisonment so he is able to join them. He reminds them of the love that he has for them, and that serves as the framework for their obedience. Obedience, again, being mentioned here in light of chapter 2, verse 8, when he's talking about Christ's obedience. The reason I'm emphasizing these things is because, from the language, you can tell that Paul is starting to wrap up his ideas. He's going to shift themes for the rest of chapter 2. And then again, chapter 3 begins with rejoice. But here, he begins to wrap up. You see, in verse 27, he began with a challenge for them to live a life worthy of the gospel. Paul talked to them about what this meant as they faced external opposition and internal tension. Paul explained to them the work of Christ and the impact that it should have on both their witness and their relationship with other believers. And in light of all of that, he begins verse, 13 by, verse 12 by saying, Therefore, obey. Paul, from his letters, is not calling them to a blind obedience to anything he says, but he's calling them, as he does throughout the New Testament, to obedience to Christ. 
faith expressed in obedience is the point of his concern. This is how you live a life worthy of the gospel. Obey. But how are we to obey? I know. You came to church and we're going to talk about obedience. I know. But the source. He continues at the end of verse 12 and he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The obedience is shown in their working out of their salvation. He calls them to gospel living. He reminds them that Christ is with them in the midst of external pressures, that humility maintains unity in the midst of internal tensions, and that Christ himself has gone before them in obedience and beckons them to follow him to glory. So obey by working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But what does that mean? Some have taken working out your salvation with fear and trembling to mean that people need to save themselves, that it deals with an individual salvation. But that is contrary to the rest of Scripture and even verse 13 that says, God is the one who works in you for his will and his good pleasure. Some have taken this text to mean working out the salvation of the community, meaning that this could be taken as a rebuke to get people saved or persevere in their salvation. However, this still misses the context of what Paul's argument is. Neglecting the sort of buildup that's been happening since chapter 1, verse 27, where we've been for a couple of months. I think what is being said in this phrase is the result of their salvation coming to fruition, meaning that they have been saved by God and that their effect, the effect of their salvation is shown in their obedience and attitude towards one another in the believing community. Let this salvation work itself out in you. Let it produce fruit according with repentance. He is saying this in context with verse 13. You are saved by God's grace, and so let this grace work itself out as God's people. Therefore, obey. Perseverance in the midst of persecution, humility in the midst of conflict, seeking a glory that does not come from man but comes from God. This is the working out of your salvation. The fruit of being united to Christ. He wants them to mature and abound in every good work, which is how he ended his prayer in chapter 1. That is why in verse 13 he can say that it is God who works in us for his good pleasure. The source of their obedience is not the fact that they are afraid. It's not the fact that they can work so hard, but it is God. God is the one that's working. That's the source. God is the one, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, who begun the work and will bring it into completion. You obey, not because you have anything to earn, but because God is the one who's working out in our lives. And the fruit of that work, no matter how big or how small, is his doing as he grows us and matures us. The source of that strength does not come from us, but overflows from the work of Christ into our lives. Paul is saying to God's people in Philippi, you have been saved by grace, 
God is the one who's working in the midst of you. Therefore, obey. We are called to obey not just because it is our duty. We are called to obey not just because disobedience has consequences, although it does. We are called to obey not just because it is the right thing to do, although it is. We are called to obey because we are God's people. We are loved by him. We have been saved by grace. The promises are ours in Jesus, and that's what fuels our obedience. It's like running. I know that doesn't make sense, right? But have you ever met somebody that likes running? Like the strange people that enjoy it? Like they, Deborah, for example. <laughs> like, if I run because I want to lose weight, I'll run until I lose weight, right? Because I want to look a certain way. If I run because I'm afraid of my health in the future, I'll run for a time, but I'll find another exercise, right? Easier, I'll start to start walking at some point, right? Like, that's good for your heart, actually. But if you run because you love to run, you'll run in the rain. That's what he's saying. You're loved by God. You don't obey out of fear. You don't obey out of duty, although it is our calling. You obey out of love because God is the one who works in us for his will and for his good pleasure. You have been bought for a price. We have the communion of the church, the strengthening of the Holy Spirit, the love of God the Father, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in death, ours are the promises of eternal life and joy in the world to come. The fuel for the command is the work of Jesus Christ for his people. He is the one who has gathered a people for himself. So let us live as those who have been saved by grace because that's who we are. That is the source of our enterprise. Our growth in holiness is not planted on the soil of duty or of fear, but on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so with that, we look at, if that is the source, what's the direction? Verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So if Paul begun his appeal by reminding the Philippians of their identity and their responsibility, he continues with another command. There's two commands in this text. There's the first one, which obey, and then the second one, don't grumble, right? Stop complaining, right? Uh, my mommy used to yell at me all the time. <laughs> he commands them in reference to the Old Testament for a mission in the New Covenant. So he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. And this is rather an interesting use by Paul as he is referencing the passages that we read this morning in the Pentateuch, the wilderness generation, the ones who came to the edge of the promised land and on hearing the complaint of ten spies turned away. The wilderness generation who had seen the mighty hand of God in the Exodus, who had crossed the Red Sea, had seen fire descend upon the mountain, and were brought to the edge of the promised land. In Numbers 14, upon hearing the testimony of ten witnesses, or ten wicked spies, they grumble against God and they test them. 
and it was something that was referenced throughout the scripture. Paul is bringing this up as a warning. He's warning the Philippians of the danger within their midst. They, as God's people, have been saved by grace, are partakers of the salvation which the Exodus only pictured. They receive the promises of God with greater effect than a fire upon a mountain and are on a journey to the true promised land. Do not grumble like they did. Heed the warning. Grumbling, as is shown here, is the faithless act of questioning God's motives and his goodness towards us in the situations of life and forgetting not only what he has done, but what he has promised to do. And so he looks at the Philippians and he says, do not grumble. Paul brings it even closer by using this next word, do not grumble and question, right? Questioning is not talking about legitimate questions. So like if we're in Sunday school, feel free to ask questions. It's not talking about that. This gives us, it can be translated as disputing or arguing. It gives us a tremendous insight into the issues that were actually happening at the church internally in Philippi. It is the use of those internal faculties of thought to cause quarrel or sow dissent and doubt and temptation among God's people. It is that the apostle warns again and does so by referencing the wilderness generation. The command is to lean away from doubting and combative heart that neither wants to trust God and constantly looks for reasons to cause dispute. He warns them to not be the type of people that is constantly doubting God's goodness towards them through their grumbling and sowing discontent among their church through their disputing. That's the warning. And he gives them then a reason why they should do all these things without grumbling or questioning. The idea of identity comes up again by describing them as the blameless and innocent children of God. The people of Philippi were called to obey God in all things without grumbling and disputing because they are God's children. It is what overflows from their identity. It is in living this way that differentiates them from those around them. And he uses again an Old Testament reference, the, the crooked and twisted generation, which it's talking about the wilderness generation in Deuteronomy. We also read that earlier. They are called to shine in their witness in the midst of a world where the norm is to, trust, to mistrust God's goodness and to cause dissent and dispute among each other. Verse 16 begins wrapping up this idea by adding the qualifier, holding fast to the word of life. As you hold fast to the word of life, you don't grumble against God like the wilderness generation or dispute with those around you because you are called to shine. In their leaning away from grumbling and questioning, they reflect the character of God. And in that manner, that's how they shine. The direction of that gospel is impact is shown both in your posture before God and in your disposition towards others. They have been saved. They are the children of God by faith. And so they are called to live this out. 
The source is God working in their lives and the direction is their posture before him and towards others. That's where you shine. And so I think it's important to linger momentarily on the idea of grumbling and disputing. We who are in Christ Jesus have received the benefits of being called children of God. So does that mean that we should never complain or dispute in any way whatsoever? So if your socks are wet after a rainstorm, does that mean you can't sigh? When your friends betray you, does that mean you can't get hurt? When others fail you, does that mean you can't voice your hurt or pain on the matter? How then does our identity as the children of God affect the way not only that we approach each other, but the challenges that we face in our life? Scripture is filled with warnings to avoid grumbling and disputed. We are often tempted to grumble and dispute when there is something wrong. So it is important to clarify that grumbling is not the same thing as saying that something hurts. It is okay to say those things which hurt. Grumbling, as it is being described here, is those things that are said with faithlessness. It is an anxious exclamation, doubting that God will be able to resolve the situation and a longing to resolve everything by our own force and strength. That's grumbling. A beloved pastor said, grumbling comes to God with our problems on a posture of unbelief while denying the goodness of his character. That's grumbling. He rather, and I would agree, promotes the idea that lament can look a lot like grumbling, but it comes to God from a posture of faith and dependence. It is not that we ignore the fact that there are problems in life, but rather it is the posture by which we come with those problems before God and what we believe about his character in the midst of them. Our God cares for us as his children and we can cast all of our anxieties upon him. He will not abandon us. It is in being able to lament the things that happen in faith. That's how you shine. That's what he's saying. Even in the midst of trouble, we have a God whom we can trust. It's okay to say that things hurt. The issue is if we doubt his goodness towards us. Because our God has been good. So then, what does that have to do with disputing? If the problems and tensions of life can cause us to doubt the goodness of God and grumble, they can also cause us to fight with each other. And that's what Paul is saying. Disputing is not the same as expressing concern or hurt or disagreement. It's okay to disagree. We talked about it earlier in Philippians. Matthew 18 teaches us that when there is a conflict, how to reconcile and address the sin that sometimes we have against one another. Rather, disputing is that posture of heart that tries to resolve all problems by fighting with other people. We, we should and are called to address problems with each other, but the posture of our heart is one of humility and generosity. We should not be a people that are disputing, but a people that are reconciliatory. 
If, if grumbling looks at the problems and faithlessly responds to God, disputing looks at problems and argumentatively blames other people, we are rather called to share in one another's burdens. And that's how you shine. That's what Paul is saying. In a world where the norm is to either blame God or others, you aim to reconcile. When it is easier to ignore problems or get into the ring ready to fight, our calling is to reconcile, to humbly approach one another, and to go to God in prayer. That is the gospel of reconciliation working itself out in our lives. We shine like lights because in the way that we lament before God and reconcile with each other, we point to the one who both wipes away all of our tears and has torn down the dividing wall. So if that is the source and that is the direction, what is the end? Verses 17 through 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, also, should you be glad and rejoice with me. The transition of the passage comes at the beginning of verse 16, where Paul begins by saying that he longs for them to mature so that he can be certain that he didn't run in vain. He mentioned in verse 16 the day of Christ, which is that day when we all, both believing and unbelieving, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. By bringing this sort of finality, uh, he reminds them both of the end of their struggles and the results of those struggles. Although he is concerned over their witness in bringing up this way both a way of rebuke and an indication of the purpose and direction of their lives. Where living for your own purposes, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, selfishly leads to vain glory, Paul, rather, runs for their sake and for their maturity to stand before God. Paul, as he comes to the conclusion of this dialogue with them, wants to emphasize two things, their relationship and the joy that they share in that relationship. He reminds them again of his relationship to them and then continues to the joy. We see that in verse 17 when he talks about himself again in the sense that he is being poured out for their faith. Throughout this letter, the deep and beautiful relationship of the aged apostle with his friends continues to come to light. They, in the midst of a city where other people manipulate and use others in order to gain advantage and glory, he pours himself out. He, here as he is concluding his point, he brings it up again as a reminder of the love and labor that is shared between them. To Paul, they are a joy. He rejoices with them and he's poured out for their sake. He shares their burdens. He's concerned with their welfare and he longs for their maturity. From verse from chapter 1, verse 27, to here, Paul has been making one point. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Live a life worthy of the gospel when you face adversaries and external pressures. That's the rest of chapter 1. Remain steadfast by not grumbling. Remember your mission and trusting God. When you face internal tensions, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that threaten to tear you apart, Strive for unity by humbly considering others greater than yourself. 
Remember Jesus, who goes before us and showed us the true way. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Therefore, obey our Lord by working out your salvation in fear and trembling, not grumbling by the pressures of the world or fighting with the tensions of relationship. So he wraps it up by saying all of that. And he looks at him and he says, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Paul is in prison, far from them physically. He does not know if this is his last letter, and we do not know it historically. But all he can say to them is, I rejoice with you. Because of the gospel, that's what it calls us to do when we can look at other struggling people and say, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. They bring joy to his heart in the midst of his struggles and in the midst of their struggles. Joy and love share between people that have been through it together. He doesn't distance himself from them. He does not elevate himself above them, but with love and tender care rejoices with them, for them. He loves them and they bring him joy. Even more, he goes on to call to their joy as well. Not only the joy that they bring him, but the joy that he brings them, right? Like, wouldn't that be great if you could just send a letter to somebody? Like, I make you glad, right? Like, that's what he's doing. The Philippians love him too. They rejoiced for him in his labors and his struggles. When he went to prison, they weren't ashamed of him, but they sent him monetary support. They have not shied away from him, but continue to support him. And he supports them. Their relationship brings them joy, even in the midst of difficulty. The whole world could be collapsing around them. And yet Paul reminds them, that they and him have a reason to sing, a reason for joy in the midst of struggles. The gospel, as we have been discussing, provides this source of joy. It is the natural response of people that have been saved by grace. It is not in the circumstances of life that they found the foundation for their joy, but their life is hidden in Christ Jesus. The gospel provides the end for them, joy. He reminds them, lest it be forgotten, you can rejoice that theirs are the promises. Because they have been saved by God, they can live as those who have been saved. They can rejoice. They have a reason to sing, a reason to hope, a reason to keep going. They have joy in the promises of God. When I was in college, I um, had dinner with a friend from high school. And we're just having dinner. It might have been lunch. It was lunch. Sorry, I forgot. We were having lunch. It was on the quad. And we're just chatting. And I'm like chatting away. But my friend looked weird. And so I was like, what's wrong? Like, did I say something wrong? Because sometimes I say dumb things. And, uh, and I was afraid this was one of those instances. But my friend looked at me and they said, oh, I just, I've never seen you smile. It wasn't until college where I felt like my faith really took root, even though I grew up in a Christian home. And there were certain hardships in my life that I didn't realize had made me a hard man. So that in high school, from high school to college, when I saw somebody that I hadn't seen in a while, they could say, I don't know, I've never seen you smile. I feel like I smile all the time now. 
we who are the beneficiaries of the gospel of grace have a joy. We live in an unsatisfied world by both modern demands and standards. There is a constant demand to improve and achieve and be better. And I'm not saying that this is a rebuke for genuine and incremental growth. But I do think it's important to recognize the critical age that we live in. I do not mean critical in the sense that we think deeply about things, but critical in the sort of unsatisfied and anxious demand for something better. The best example is probably the television. Like it's so hard to find something good on TV now because there's so many channels, right? And now with YouTube, it's impossible. Critical in the sense that if you have a home, it's not good enough. If you have a job, it's not the right job. If you have friends, you could have better ones. Now, if there are good opportunities, it is appropriate to seek good opportunities. But Paul gently reminds them and us, if there are things to be concerned in terms of improvement and growth, don't forget to rejoice. He just spent 27 verses telling them about all the ways that they have to grow. But then he goes, but rejoice. We have reasons to rejoice. We can rejoice now. He reminds them of something simple, and it reminds us. There are reasons to smile. We may look at our lives and think about all the things that need to be different and the things that we need to do and the areas that we need to improve and grow and change. But remember, because of the gospel, we have a reason to sing. Our joy is not dependent on the launching pad, meaning that even if we came from a hard situation, it doesn't mean that it steals our joy. Our joy is not dependent on the delay to get to our destination or the difficulties that we face on the journey or even in our own slowness of getting there. We have a deep and true joy in Jesus that we can share with each other. So beloved brothers and sisters, as Paul calls the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel, let us not forget, we who stand on the work of Christ, we can rejoice. We have a reason to sing. In Christ, we have the source of our growth in holiness and obedience. The gospel impacts our lives in such a way that the direction of that obedience is that we shine both in our posture before God as we trust him in his goodness and in our reconciliation with each other. And in the midst of all of that, we rejoice because God is faithful and he is the founder and finisher of our faith. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And as we look to you, help us to trust you more. In those situations in our life where we may be tempted to grumble, help us to see that even in the midst of difficulty, it is your hand that guide us, that you have never abandoned your people, 
and especially not at the edge of the promised land. Help us, Lord, in those difficult relationships where we are tempted to question and dispute. Help us to bring things humbly and with gentleness, even to those that disagree with us, that we may love them and in such a manner shine the gospel of reconciliation. Help us, Lord, even in all the areas that we see that we might want better or more in all our areas of legitimate growth. Help us not to forget we have a joy in you. Help us not to forget that ours are the promises that you stand with us, that you are always with us, that you are there when we open our eyes and you'll be there when we close them. You are the one that welcomes us into glory. Help us to rejoice in the fact that you do not forget us. And so we look to you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.